Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to American Biography, The Life of John Marshall, Episode 3, Delenda Est Norfolk. Last time, we left John Marshall on the precipice of his first military engagement. To understand why this action took place at the obscure crossing of Great Bridge, it's important to first understand the importance of Norfolk, Virginia. By the time of the American Revolution, Norfolk was a conspicuously prosperous port city, which, thanks to its fine natural harbor, was a center of trade with Great Britain. Testament to the quality of its natural disposition is the fact that, even today, both the largest naval base in the world, as well as one of NATO's two strategic command centers, called the city home. The commercial connections that had been forged with Britain since the time of its founding ensured that Norfolk was, as many other major trading centers on the continent were, a stronghold of Tory sentiment. After the British royal governor, Lord Dunmore, fled Williamsburg, Norfolk, with its friendly population and access to the sea, was a logical place for him to hold up, lick his wounds, and plan the retaking of the colony. In his biography of George Washington, Marshall discusses the events of Great Bridge and Norfolk and notes that Dunmore was not only gathering loyalists and runaway slaves to augment his forces, but was also collecting a naval force which threatened to be extremely troublesome in a country so intersected with large navigable rivers as the colony of Virginia. As a base for reasserting royal prerogative, Norfolk served nicely. The city was favored with superb natural defenses on virtually all sides, including the James River, the Elizabeth River, the Dismal Swamp, and the Chesapeake Bay. In 1775, to try to take the city by sea meant taking on the Royal Navy that lay at anchor there, and for the Navyless Virginians, this wasn't a realistic option. The alternative was a landed approach, 
which due to the area's geography meant approaching from the south and passing through a small village named, you guessed it, Great Bridge. The village took its name from the bridge which ran through it, a 160-yard causeway that spanned the Elizabeth River where it mingled with the impenetrable marshes that dominated the area, making the bridge the only real route to Norfolk. The strategic importance of this crossing was recognized by both sides, and Dunmore, determined to control the bridge, constructed a fort on the north side of the river, which he manned with a force of 600, and upon which he fixed a dozen artillery pieces ready to contest any attempted crossing. Dunmore took an additional defensive step and had a number of planks from the floor of the bridge removed, making a forced crossing next to impossible. In early December 1775, Marshall and the Culpeper Minutemen joined a state militia force of 700 on the opposite bank of the Elizabeth River. The Virginians threw up fortifications of their own, and both sides settled in to a standoff. After five days, either because of his disregard of American martial skills or fearing the arrival of additional rebel forces, Dunmore decided to abandon his entrenched and easily defensible position and ordered a frontal assault take place on December 9th. Of course, to do so, Dunmore's forces first had to relay the planks of the bridge that they'd previously torn up, and the time that this took them cost the royal forces the element of surprise, as roughly about the same time as they finished their work, the Virginia camp was waking up to the sounds of the reveille. The assault was preceded by a cannonade, which the Minutemen didn't necessarily think presaged an attack, because, I, I mean, come on, why would the British abandon a strong position just to mount a suicidal charge into... Wait, what's that? The British are crossing the bridge? Okay... Dunmore's forces attacked with just over 600 men, led by his best troops, 60 grenadiers, British regulars in full-dress uniform, bayonets fixed, marching six abreast, straight into the steel teeth of the militia's fortified position. The grenadiers would be followed by British marines, and then whatever loyalist militia and former slaves enlisted by Dunmore were now at his disposal. Major Thomas Marshall assumed command of the American breastworks, while John Marshall and the Culpeper riflemen moved onto the high ground on the left of the causeway, where they brought down a hot fire into the British right flank. The ferocity of the American fire upon the advancing enemy was terrible, as Richard Kittard Meade, a captain in the Virginia 2nd, described the engagement. I then saw the horrors of war in perfection, worse than can be imagined. Ten and twelve bullets through many, limbs broken in two or three places, brains turned out. Good God, what a sight. However, despite the intensity with which the charge was opposed, through valor and determination, the British vanguard very nearly reached their goal. The officer leading the charge, shot many times, only fell dead steps away from the American breastwork. One British Marine writes of the assault, We marched up to their works with the intrepidity of lions. But alas, we retreated with much fewer brave fellows than we took out. Their fire was so heavy 
that had we not retreated as we did, we should, every one, have been cut off. Figure to yourself a strong breastwork built across the causeway, on which six men only could advance abreast. A large swamp almost surrounded them, at the back of which were two small breastworks to flank us in our attack on the entrenchments. Under these disadvantages, it was impossible to succeed. We had sixty killed, wounded, and taken prisoner. Among them were the gallant Captain Fordyce of the Grenadiers. Marshall writes that with the fall of Captain Fordyce, the advancing column broke and retreated, then renders his critical judgment of the assault as an ill-judged attack. Every grenadier is said to have been killed or wounded, while the Americans did not lose a single man. That night, Dunmore ordered the fort abandoned and fell back not to Norfolk, but to his ships in the harbor. Many loyalists took this opportunity to abandon the city and join him there. Knowing the strategic value of Norfolk, American forces were surprised to find the city undefended when they arrived on December 14th, and they marched into the city unopposed. But the absence of troops did not mean the absence of antagonists. Those civilians who remained in Norfolk were, by and large, vociferous loyalists who did not appreciate the occupation of their city by rebel militia, and tensions were high. Marshall writes that a favorite amusement of the troops was taking potshots at the British ships in the harbor. Dunmore took great offense to this, and according to Marshall, ordered a bombardment of waterfront buildings, where American sharpshooters liked to hide, on New Year's Day, and they used this action as a cover for the landing of raiding parties who then set fire to those buildings. As the fire began to spread, the militiamen felt no great compunction to protect Tory property, so, according to Marshall, they watched the flames spread from house to house without making any attempt to extinguish them. Norfolk burned for days, with the fires consuming roughly two-thirds of the city. The fire spread was likely aided by the militia, as either discipline in the ranks broke down from boredom, or the commanders let their men off the leash. And, as soldiers from time immemorial have been wont to do, they fell to ransacking the abandoned and burnt-out properties, looting what things of value they could find. President of the Norfolk Historical Society, Louis L. Guy, Jr., claims that a Virginia commission later determined that 51 houses had been destroyed by Dunmore's forces and another 863 by Patriot troops. There's no indication what, if any part, John Marshall played in the sacking of Norfolk, but he was 19 years old, and possibly as susceptible to peer pressure as any 19-year-old, not to mention that war has the horrible habit of making beasts out of otherwise rational men. In his own account of the events at Norfolk, while he did admit that the militia hadn't lifted a finger to put out the flames, he makes no mention of any other misdeeds. This omission could be out of guilt, or done so not to besmirch friends and comrades, or could mean nothing more than as a biographer, he didn't think that detail was particularly relevant to the life of George Washington, who, after all, wasn't there. All we can do is speculate, but to be objective, we have to at least entertain the possibility that Marshall may have been involved. With that said, my general impression of Marshall's character at 19 
is that he was rather old for his age, as oldest children with numerous siblings often are. He was also an officer, which, in the 18th century, brought with it certain notions of honorable conduct and expectations of gentlemanly behavior. And of course, his father was also close at hand, who may have acted as a moderating influence. Factors such as these might have dissuaded him from participating in the plundering of Norfolk, but as I said, all this is speculation, as the sources are silent on the point. In February, word came from Williamsburg that the militia were to withdraw from Norfolk. However, the city could not simply be left behind for possible reoccupation by the British. So along with the order to withdraw came permission to put the city's remaining 400 or so buildings to the torch. In his biography of Washington, Marshall writes ruefully, Thus was destroyed the most populous and flourishing town in Virginia. Its destruction was one of those ill-judged measures of which the consequences are felt long after the motives are forgotten. Norfolk's fate was eerily presaged by Thomas Jefferson, who, writing to a friend before the fighting, had paraphrased Cato the Elder's cryptic refrain about Carthage, Delenda est Norfolk. Norfolk must be destroyed. Though nobody knew this at the time, Norfolk's destruction and Lord Dunmore's flight marked the end of royal authority in Virginia. However, those on the ground, without the gift of hindsight, could take no comfort in that knowledge. For many of them, long years of fighting still lay ahead. But by March of 1776, Marshall and his battalion, having left the smoldering ruins of Norfolk behind them, were discharged and sent home in time for planting. This practice regularly crippled the early American war effort, as it's difficult to predict how many men you might reliably have under arms at any given time. And with such a revolving door, it was also difficult to instill discipline in these volunteers or mold them into any kind of cohesive and effective fighting force before their enlistments were up and it was time for them to go home. By August of 1776, an exasperated Washington would write to Congress. These circumstances fully confirm the opinion I ever entertained, and which I more than once in my letters took the liberty of mentioning to Congress, that no dependence could be placed in a militia or other troops than those enlisted and embodied for a longer period than our regulations have hitherto prescribed. I am persuaded, and am as fully convinced as of any one fact that has happened, that our liberties must, of necessity, be greatly hazarded, if not entirely lost, if their defense be left to any but a permanent army. To this end, Virginia authorized six regiments be raised for the Continental Army. Falkworth County was entitled to raise a 75-man company. However, they would set out with less than 50, including John Marshall. He was once again chosen first lieutenant, and with that, the company set out to join the 11th Virginia under the command of the irreverent Daniel Morgan. John Marshall was in the army now. Okay, this is a good place to stop for now. I want to thank all of you for listening. As always, if you have any suggestions, comments, questions, or concerns, please don't hesitate to email me at AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. And just some quick housekeeping notes. Some visuals for this episode are already up on our Facebook page, as well as on the website. And if you're on the website, 
please consider supporting American Biography. You can click the donate button on the homepage at AmericanBiography.webs.com, or you can help spread the word by sharing the podcast with friends and family, by liking us on Facebook, or by writing an iTunes or Stitcher review. So that's all for now, and I hope you'll join me next time as John Marshall begins his stint as a regular foot practitioner in the Continental Army, where he'll bear witness to the debacle at the Brandywine and the fall of Philadelphia. Until then, thanks, and I'll talk to you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.